In Mark 1, 16 through 20, God speaks in his word. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. All right. We're in the book of Mark. If you're a guest in the room, uh, man, we're just we're glad that you're here, honored that you would be here. Uh, my name is Ben. <clears throat> I'm the uh, lead pastor here, but but serve as one of um, several other elders that we have, several other pastors. And um, so just like Zach said, man, if you have questions about the church, we would love uh, to talk with you. So this book, Mark, is one of the four Gospels. We've been preaching it now for a week. This is the fourth week. And um, four weeks into Mark, and we're still in the first chapter. If that lets you know, like, it's going to take us a little while to get through, but it is an amazing book. It's, it, it is the story of... Jesus' life and ministry on earth, and it is so fast-paced. It's the smallest uh, or the shortest gospel. There are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and um, Mark is 16 chapters, and it moves at the speed of light, man. There is one after another, Jesus performing miracles. Um, The word immediately is used over 40 times in this gospel alone. Only 16 chapters. It's not like there's a lot of words and he says immediately a lot. So that lets you know that Mark is trying to, he's trying to get after it. And what we discovered is for the church in Rome at the time, um, they would have needed immediate help because they were under intense persecution and uh, being murdered, being butchered, like people were paying to watch them be butchered in the Colosseum. They had a governor, um, an emperor of Rome that hated Christians and blamed everything on them. So Mark comes in with this gospel that He's, he's literally taking notes from Peter, who is one of the 12 disciples. And Mark, is, he has a point to it, man. He's writing it so fast-paced because he's writing it to a church that needs immediate help and immediate grace. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ immediately to help people that needed hope right away. So it's moving fast-paced, man. So we're, um, we're in chapter 1, 16 through 20 today. And um, we're going to learn a little bit about when Jesus initially calls out his 12 disciples. Last week, what happened was Jesus came in to be baptized by John the Baptist out in the wilderness. Jesus gets baptized. The Father breaks open heaven, says, this is my son. Um, I am pleased with him. So before Jesus ever does any ministry, Before he ever works for the Father, tries to bring his kingdom, the Father's already pleased with him, which is a whole other sermon, but that's for every Christian in the room. You don't have to work for God's approval. The Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove, leads Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus is there for 40 days. He gets tempted. He comes out victorious. And then when he comes out, he says, the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we see him immediately calling out his disciples. So before we jump into kind of the meat of the sermon, 
I want to ask you a quick question, and don't blurt out an answer or raise your hand. I mean, you can raise your hand. I'm not going to call on you, though. I'm really sorry. Uh, I want to ask you to define internally. Define, like, what is your definition? When I say, simply, what is a Christian? Just think about what a Christian is. Define it internally. What's a Christian? Christ follower, maybe that's simple enough. Some sort of moral standard that looks somewhat like the Bible. For some people in the room, it might be like, well, I vote a certain way, so I think I'm a Christian. (laughs) Or it might be for some of you, like, I grew up in a Christian household, so I'm a Christian. We went to church a lot, so I'm a Christian. To define Christian has a lot to do with our culture and our surroundings. Now I want to ask you another uh, definition. What does it mean to be a disciple? It's interesting, isn't it? I feel it in the room. I felt it myself when I was asking myself this question. I feel like Christian can kind of be somewhat easily defined, but disciple is a word that we never think about. We like to call ourselves Christian because it's fitting. We're in America. We're in the Bible Belt. We're in like the most Christian part of the Christian nation. Surely we're Christians. But when I say, are you a disciple? Where does your brain go? How do you even know what a disciple is? And some of us have put two and two together and it's like, I can't really call myself a Christian unless I'm a disciple, but I don't know what a disciple actually is. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to be an actual disciple of Jesus and not just carry the term Christian, but carry it as a disciple first and foremost. For most people in our culture in Oklahoma, being a Christian means believing certain truth claims about Jesus like this. Well, I'm a Christian because I believe in God and trust that Jesus died for my sins. Well, that's true. You need to believe both of those. For others, being a Christian means something that you inherit from your family, like height and hair color. For many people outside the church, Christian means a certain political voting block, often referred to as evangelical Christian, rather than anything about Jesus at all. And then there's the word disciple, which is simply put, disciple is someone who is a follower of Jesus. The emphasis in discipleship is not just simply on a mental assent to the truth, although truth matters, but it's a way of life oriented around a person who becomes king of our life. To be a disciple means you're putting all your cards on the table. It's like, I'm a disciple of this person and... Even if they say something I disagree with, I still say yes to them. It's a way of life. To be a follower of Jesus and to be a disciple means that when you disagree with him, which you will, if you're paying attention to the words that he says, at some point in your life, you're going to disagree. To be a disciple of him means when you disagree, you pursue losing. You pursue losing the argument because you're a disciple of Jesus. Oklahoma Christianity can actually allow you to be a Christian and not a disciple. So we need to jump into this today. 
Because Jesus is calling disciples to himself. And there are many in the room today that would say that we follow Jesus, but we only do it because of the culture that we're in. We need to learn what it means to be a disciple. So let me talk about discipleship real quick. There is a history attached to this word. The idea of discipleship didn't originate with Jesus. It wasn't the first century deal. There was a long-standing tradition of discipleship in Jewish culture for hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. There's a three-tiered process in Jewish culture. So here it is. Tier one, tier two, and tier three. Let's start with tier one. Jewish boys and girls would essentially be brought into a training program, something like a preschool, elementary school, with the sole focus on memorizing the Pentateuch until age 12. So they're brought into this program, and their whole focus was to memorize the Pentateuch, which is the books of the law, the early books of the law of the Old Testament. I already, knowing that they had to do this, by age 12, I'm 40 years old. I, there's no way. If you asked me to memorize like one whole chapter, it would take me at least a decade, I think, to do that. By age 12, they had to memorize the entire Pentateuch. That's a lot of words. That's some genealogies. Quite a bit going on. That's tier one. Then there's tier two. The best and the brightest from that group. So everybody had to memorize the Pentateuch. And then you take the best and the brightest out of that group. They would move on to tier two. And they would learn to memorize the entire Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi. From age 12 to 14. Two years. Genesis to Malachi. Good luck, buddy. Hope you make it. Everyone that could not pass that two-year test, could not memorize the whole thing and perform well, every one of those people entered the workforce. So you're rejected. In discipleship, it's time to go to work, buddy. I think I'd be trying hard to memorize some stuff. I don't know if I'd be ready to go to work at that point. Then there's tier three. Tier three is like, you made it, man. You made it all the way through buds, SEAL training, <laughs> military guys in the room. Tier three, at age 14, the best and the brightest of that group would be invited into a formal process called discipleship or Talmud in Hebrew. Then they would seek out a rabbi to follow. So this is a Small, started with a large group. This is a small group of people at this point. And now you're able to enter into discipleship, the Talmud. Your job, after completing like all of those memorizing, all of that, head of your class, all of that, being whittled down to just a handful of people, your job now is to go and pursue a teacher. Go pursue a rabbi. When you entered into the discipleship process, you would give up your entire life. This is what you've been working for. Give up your whole life to be with your teacher. You'd follow the teacher around. You'd learn from the teacher, observe both his life and his teachings with the ultimate goal of being exactly like him in the end. And I mean exactly. Say what he said. Live how he lived. 
walk in his footsteps, treat people exactly how he treated. Hope you get a good teacher. Do with money whatever he did with money. When you hear the word disciple, think student, think learner, think apprentice, but also primarily think someone who has laid down everything. The goal of every disciple was to be with his teacher, become like his teacher, and eventually to be able to do what his teacher did. So knowing that, context is so important, guys. Knowing that, Jesus is calling out disciples now, which we're going to get into in a little bit. I want to read this moment knowing what Talmud is, knowing what these guys would have already been through in their life as Jewish boys. Mark 1, 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat and the hired servants and followed him. So we've got five things that I want you to see basically about what it means to be like these men and to be an actual disciple of Jesus and not just call ourselves Christian, but to actually follow Jesus with our lives. First thing is this, discipleship to Jesus is first and foremost rooted in grace. This was a shocking moment for that culture. Remember what we said, tier one, tier two, and tier three. If you made it through all of those, the prize for you would be go and find a rabbi. And then you had to ask the rabbi, will you disciple me? And he could say no or yes, but you had to go and find a rabbi. Now, imagine the arrogance that some of these, the pretense that some of these rabbis more than likely possessed. They were the end game. They were top of the charts, men. You had to go to them after you finished all of this memorization. What we see here with Jesus is an upside down world. Jesus goes to them. Instead of them coming to find him, Jesus goes and finds them and he says, come and follow me which is exactly what happens to everybody who is ever saved in the eternity of the world. If you are saved today, it is not because you decided to follow Jesus. Jesus comes to you. He pulls you out of your life. He offers you grace upon grace. He saves you and he says, come follow me. So who are these guys? Who were these guys that Jesus pursued? I love this. Simon, Andrew, James, and John, they weren't the brightest. <laughs> they weren't the best. As a matter of fact, remember, they were working a job. So that means they didn't even make it through the discipleship training of the Talmud. They were already employed in the workforce. And yet, these were the types of people that Jesus was drawn to. As this story progresses, the rest of the people that Jesus invites into discipleship are among the most bizarre, messed up, culturally inappropriate, sinful people to pull in. 
tax collectors, zealots, which were the equivalent of domestic, domestic terrorists, demon-possessed women, sexually broken, all the people that Jesus called in and said, come follow me. Mark 1, 1, 16 says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew. He saw them. 119, and going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. He saw them. They weren't looking for him. They had never heard of him. They were fishermen. Jesus saw them. This is so true of you today. I don't know who you are. These guys are messed up. They didn't make it. They dropped out of the school. They couldn't even like get, get into a position to, to have a teacher or a rabbi. They just were working a job, busted up, not the brightest. I don't know who you are today, but I'm just here to tell you, man, Jesus actually sees you. He sees you. I know what it's like to come to a church in the Bible Belt and to feel like for whatever reason, we still play this stupid church game where we feel like we have to act a certain way with each other and nobody's ever allowed to be their actual selves within the church. Be yourself. Be honest and open about your life. You need a savior and so do I and we actually need each other to know that. Jesus sees you. He pursues you. That's why you're here today. It's not by a coincidence. He's coming after you. Jesus is drawn to the unlikely, to the sinful, the weak, the average, or in my case, below average. If I got a C on a paper in college, I was happy. The average or below average. Whatever your story is, whatever you're carrying today, he sees you and wants you. Discipleship, first and foremost, is rooted in the grace of Jesus. Second is this. It is a lifelong process. Transformation as a disciple is lifelong. So these disciples, they served as both good and bad examples. They were good examples because they immediately dropped their nets and followed Jesus. But one of the keys to understanding Mark's entire gospel is that the disciples primarily serve as poor examples. Not a big fan of the disciples in Mark's Gospels. So let me give you three examples real quick. James and John were brothers, uh, sons of Zebedee. And James and John were brash and arrogant men. They were young. They were working a job. There's this one scene in Mark where they go into a village like they did a lot, and they were preaching the gospel, repentance, and believe the gospel, repent and believe. The entire village rejects Jesus, which first off, don't ever stop preaching the gospel just because you get rejected. But the entire village rejects Jesus. James and John, so humble and bright, come to Jesus and they start talking about praying that he would bring down fire and consume the entire village and just kill everybody calling down napalm on a village because they didn't like Jesus. Jesus then gives them the nickname Sons of Thunder, which sounds cool. I don't think that's the way Jesus meant it, though. Have you ever been passionate? Have you been angry enough that it gets in the way of following Jesus? 
James and John are the sons of thunder in their youth and their arrogance. There's a second example. Peter confesses the right thing and then gets called Satan. In Mark 8, Peter finally gets it right. He calls Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Only to then, four verses later, be called Satan. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus says. He rebuked Jesus when Jesus told him how he should die. This is us feeling like we've got it all figured out and then realizing four verses later that we had it completely wrong. One of the things you learn uh, as you go through life and following Jesus is sometimes it's best to just keep your mouth shut. There's a lot of young guys in the room right now because you're learning some things, because you're absorbing some things mentally, although you maybe have or haven't absorbed them in your heart. There's a lot of young students in the room right now. You're learning some really good things about the Lord, man, that's really good. Let me just tell you, as one who has been you, sometimes it's best for years to just keep your mouth shut. There are things that you think you know that you don't know. And you could say one thing and in a matter of months and verses and years later, realize, I can't believe I said that. I'm 40 years old. I still do it. <laughs> I look back at my 20s, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I, I needed someone to literally punch me in the throat. That would have just helped me not say dumb things. Example three. The disciples flee in Jesus Greatest hour of need. In Mark 14, Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and every single one of his disciples flees the scene. After three years of life with Jesus, when he needed them the most to just be there, I mean, this scene with Jesus, he says, just don't fall asleep. It's not too much to ask. I know you're tired, but just don't fall asleep. He needed to go pray in the garden. He needed to go and sweat blood in the garden because he had his face set like flint toward being brutally murdered on a cross for their sins and for our sins, and they couldn't even just stay awake. This reminds me of Job's friends. For seven days, they were good friends to Job. They sat with him. They mourned. They just said, what do you need from us? And then they did the thing that they should have never done. They just start talking about God to him, start blaming Job. Jesus needed Job's friends in that seven-day period. He just needed people to be awake and be with him. After three years of life with Jesus, they all bail on him. Peter denies him even after Jesus called it out that he would. This is true for us too. Have you ever walked away from Jesus? This is our story. Walking away from him, denying even knowing him, and yet, even though you do this and I do this, even though we're arrogant, even though we open our mouth and stick our foot in our mouth, even though we deny Jesus and walk away, just like the disciples, still transformation happened. John, the napalm, the village guy, John goes from being called a son of thunder to the end of his life, he was called the apostle of love. What an amazing name change when he wrote Revelation. Peter goes from getting it very wrong to becoming one of the pillars of the early church. 
The disciple go, disciples go from fleeing in fear to boldly facing their own martyrdom for the sake of Jesus being Lord. Without fail, these disciples truly do become like Jesus in every way. Healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching with authority, caring for the poor, facing persecution and death courageously. The disciples were not saints. They followed the saint, Jesus. And they became like him. And they were broken and crazy. And so are you. But Jesus saved them, and he called them out, and they did stupid, stupid stuff. But over time, because discipleship is a lifelong journey, over time, they were redeemed. The life of a disciple is not a straight incline. It's not find the point of, this is when I, become, I have a glorified body, <laughs> and I become totally like him in every way. It's not find that, start the trajectory, and just go straight towards it. The life of a disciple is kind of up, a little bit down at times, and then up until eventually you get to this place. It's not a fixed mindset. Transformation is the goal. Don't get me wrong. Becoming like Jesus is the point of discipleship, but it is a lifelong process. The third thing is this. Discipleship will cost you. That's the understatement of the year. It doesn't just cost you something, it costs you everything. Mark 1.18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Notice they didn't bring their nets. Notice that Jesus didn't negotiate their jobs with them, which is what most of us would like to do. Notice he didn't say, hey, I'd like for you to really make this a priority in your life. Let me work with your schedule a little bit. Figure out, can you make it work? It was immediate. Nets dropped. Going to follow Jesus. Mark 1.20, immediately he called them and they left their father. They left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with hired servants and following him. These are not just stories. These things actually happened. There were, these were actual events with actual people in the boat with their father and their hired servants. They're not just walking away from their job. They're walking away from an inheritance. They're walking away from respect. They're walking away from their family, which would matter in today's culture, but it matters a whole heck of a lot more in that culture. Discipleship to Jesus will cost you. Sometimes we think about the disciples as just stories. And we think about them as like, well, they didn't really have anything to lose. They probably maybe weren't making a lot of money. Maybe they weren't having to give up a lot. It's not true. James and John owned a boat. They even owned a hired servant. Fishing in the Sea of Galilee was a very lucrative financial business to be in in the first century. And yet when Jesus called these men, it shifted all their priorities and they said yes to Jesus and no to money and comfort and security. And some of you in the room cannot fathom this. Let me challenge you today. If you are freaking out, if you are so anxious in this moment about the thought of losing comfort and money, man, it might be time to repent. It might be time for you to say, I need, there's something going on in my heart. 
Following Jesus is uncomfortable, man. It's not easy. It's going to cost you. This isn't true of just the 12. It's true of all disciples of Jesus. And I want to point you to Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the world and forfeit his soul? I don't know that God's going to ask you to give up your career. I don't know that Jesus is going to ask you to like walk away from people. I, I don't know. He might. All I know is, is that at the base foundation of following Jesus, it means yes, saying yes to him. And Lord, what do you want from my life? Here's every single other thing. My life, had, and I'm, I'm not the expert at this, my goodness. I've got so many things that I want to hold on to. I think more about my comfort than a lot of things. I can be really self-absorbed. But I think about my life, and it's like, consistently in my life, I'm 40 years old, I'm single, I, I love kids, you know, I'd like to be married, I love kids, I, but I'm, that's not happened for me. I think about like the things that I wanted to be when I grew up. I used to play baseball, and I was like, dude, I'm going to be the best pitcher to ever live. <laughs> and I was. I'm just kidding, I was <laughs> I'm definitely the most humble pitcher to ever live. <laughs> I went to college, played baseball. I had this dream about, like, um, I said, I'm going to play baseball, and I'm going to go into TV and radio after that. I'm going to be like a radio broadcaster or whatever. Had it all laid out, man. And, and I keep coming back to this place, like, time and time again, where it's so frustrating but I'll think I have it totally mapped out, like I'm headed in the right direction. I know exactly how it's going to play out. And God will interrupt my life, and I'm always faced with the same question. Will I say yes to Jesus? Will I say yes to obey him? And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you don't have a choice. Either stop, being, stop calling yourself a disciple or start obeying Jesus. It doesn't make sense for you to say that you follow Jesus and yet hang on to everything that you want to do. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he's going to ask you to lay down comfort and life and money and all kinds of stuff. To be a disciple of Jesus means that you have to say yes. The good news is, is that he's better than you anyway. He knows more than you will ever know about your life, and he's good. So he doesn't have plans to harm us, but it Honestly, it doesn't matter at this point. You're a disciple. Follow him because he's the king. There's something in our cultural moment that we need to emphasize. In a day and age where we have an allergy to authority, in a moment where everything around us is urging us to do the direct opposite of denying yourself, we have to come to grips with the reality that to be a follower of Jesus is to shift every allegiance and priority underneath Jesus as Lord. 
But there's also a cost of not following Jesus. You have this scene in Mark 10, there was a rich young ruler, and just by his title alone, we would have known that he was really wealthy and that he was really known to be a young wealthy dude, which was super strange in that day. So he was known for his wealth, which means he had a lot of wealth, and he was known for his age. He comes to Jesus. This is so silly. He comes to Jesus, and he says, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, well, keep, have you kept the law? Have you loved your neighbors yourself? And he, he tells Jesus something we know is not true. He says, yes, I've kept all the law since I was a little boy. Like, okay, Jesus is the only one that ever did that. But <clears throat> Jesus says, all right, go and sell everything that you own. And then come and follow me. He walks away frustrated. What he gets, think about this. What he gets is his stuff. He gets it for as long as he's alive on earth. Which might have been that day. Who knows? What he loses is an internal inheritance. It will cost you to follow Jesus, but it costs you so much more not to. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they leave everything, money, career, family, to follow Jesus. The rich young ruler was probably known in that day. He was definitely known in that day. Nobody knows who he is now. The Bible didn't even mention exactly who he was. Guys like Peter and James and John, Peter was probably unknown for most of his life, and yet he's still known today. You lose a lot to follow Jesus, but you gain so much more. It's a life it's abundant life. It's a life of significance and value, a life that matters. It's the opposite of wasting your life. Number four, discipleship to Jesus happens within community. It's not by some coincidence that Jesus called out two sets of brothers. Jesus calls his disciples as a community. And why is that? Because the church is meant to be a family. We know this is how Jesus says because of how, what he says. We know this, what Jesus believes because of what he says in Matthew 12. This is an interesting story, so pay attention to this. 12, 46 through 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. When Jesus calls you to himself, he also calls you into his family and his community. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There's not. You cannot be isolated in this world and continue to be a disciple of Jesus. You can't. With all humility, trust me, with as much grace as I can tell you, it is just black and white this is one of those moments where you need to listen to me and understand what I'm saying. You cannot continue to be a disciple of Jesus and do that without the church body around you. There is no such thing as loving God and hating his church. He is the head of the body. He drew up the blueprints for the church. He has a plan for you to be discipled towards him it is the church. Be rooted. Let people around you speak into your life. They're going to say crazy stuff. You're going to say crazy stuff too. They're going to not always be there for you exactly like you think. You're going to do the same thing. 
Fight for unity. Fight to maintain it. You have to have each other in order to follow Jesus, even when it's hard. And it's going to at least 50% of the time be hard. It's worth it. You follow Jesus. You need people around you. Sporadically showing up for church, talking about God without actually ever talking to God isn't discipleship. Likewise, not being in the church and with other disciples who are also laying down their lives to follow Jesus is like trying to play 12-man football by yourself. It ain't going to work out good. There's 12 dudes on defense, man, and you're trying to run by yourself. That's not going to be. It's going to hurt. It's not just going to hurt. There's no way to advance. You were created for community of disciples. Finally, the fifth thing is this. Discipleship to Jesus is for the benefit and blessing of the world. Jesus said to them, Mark 1:17, "Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men." Fishers of men is an interesting phrase. It's not some weird Christian cliche that Jesus um, invented in this moment. It was a Greco-Roman way of saying that person is such a gifted teacher that they can catch people's attention and imagination. The phrase also harkens back to the Old Testament where God spoke about his coming judgment on the world against evil, but he was going to send out fishers of men as a means of rescue and redemption. What Jesus was doing with his original disciples and what he intends to do with us today is to make us so much like him that we begin to live in a radically dissimilar way in front of the watching world. The way we handle money. The way we handle sex, the way we handle ethics and enemy love, the way we handle marriage and singleness and our approach to technology, and if we have peace, if we're less anxious, if we're more gentle, if we're more kind. We talk a lot about the fruit of the Spirit here. When you hear the fruit of the Spirit, you there's something in every human that makes us go, my goodness, I want to be around that person. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. They're faithful, self-controlled. That sounds like a great friend. The point is this. We are called to be salt and light in the world. A world without Jesus, a world without Christians, is a world with no flavor. Salt adds flavor to meat. Well, it adds flavor to anything. But I'm particularly thinking about like a New York strip steak right now. All you need is salt. Salt changes the game. It enhances the flavor of the steak. For those of you that like to cook, sear it high for two minutes, flip it on either side, make sure to put some salt on it, and then let it rest for another 10 or so. Bring it up to 160 maybe, mid-rare. Salt adds flavor. You are called to be salt in this world. Add flavor as Christians. You're called to be light in the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, so let your light shine before men. In a dark world, you are salt and light. 
point is, is that it's not just about being like Jesus, it's about also doing what Jesus did. I love this from C.S. Lewis. Enemy-occupied territory. That is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. So, you've got two definitions today. Two titles. The reality is this. There's an invitation to not what our Western culture hears when they hear the word Christian and not to evangelical Christianity, whatever that means at this point. Not to mental assent to truth claims, but what you're invited to is into the way to God. The early Christians were never called Christians. They weren't even called disciples. Literally, Christianity was called the people of the way, or just the way. Because they claimed that there was one way to God. It was through Jesus. So that's your invitation today. There's one way to God. It's through Jesus. Does it take a lot? Oh yeah, it takes everything. Every part of your life. Give up your life, follow Jesus. Don't just pursue a cultural Christianity. Become a disciple of Jesus. It's gonna cost you everything. What is he asking you to give up today? What is he asking you to lay down? What's he asking you to drop? It is all gonna be worth it in the end. But in this moment today, man, it's time to lay down your life. Follow him. There's lots of different people in the room. There's Christians in the room. There's true disciples. And maybe you've forgotten what you signed up for. I do this all the time. I become a disciple of comfort more than Jesus a lot. Maybe it's time for you to just remember as we go to the table today. And just remember like what you're called to be, what he's called you to. Don't hesitate to lay it down again. Then there's lots of other people in the room that you've done a lot of church stuff. You're really good at like putting on the church front, man. You know all the answers. You've you been there, done that. But you never said yes to being a disciple of Jesus. And honestly, what that means is that you're, you're not a saved person. You need to give your life to Jesus today. And then there's some of you in the room that just flat out are just exploring Christianity. You got questions about it. The invitation is this. Yes, it requires your whole life to follow Jesus, but it actually is worth it. What you get in return is a new soul, a new heart. You become a new creation. That happens for eternity. So think about how to respond as we go to the table today. Let's stand. Grab those communion cups. They're down on the floor in front of you. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus, the Son of God, took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he held up the cup of wine. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you. Take and drink. Drink. 